You're listening to Situational Significance, a co-production of the PSU Vanguard and KPSU, broadcasting live and streaming worldwide on kpsu.org. So I'm Nick Townsend, your regular host, and in the booth with me today, I have Nick Gatlin, who is not your regular host. Say hi, Nick. Hey there. So Nick Gatlin, you are going to be co-hosting with us this week, and you are a contributor to the news and arts and culture section, correct? Yep. All right. Awesome. Well, let's dig into it. So our first story is international, and it's the Lesotho prime minister fails to show up in court to face murder charge. So, Nick, why don't you give me a bit of background on this? Yeah, so the prime minister's wife, apparently, is facing charges of murdering the prime minister's former wife, and now the prime minister himself is on charges for murdering his wife. Um, and apparently he's skipped out of the country— to have a medical check, and a statement from his office said that he had urgent medical attention early Friday morning and needed to get a check to leave the country. And, you know, she's just been in hiding in South Africa. And see, that's where I feel like um, the, partic- the particular geographics of the situation are really interesting, because Lesotho is completely surrounded by South Africa, so you can escape in literally any direction to South Africa. Yeah, I don't really understand why they chose a medical excuse for this, because that seems pretty transparent. Yeah, and he can, like, you you come back after a medical thing. Like, you, that's not forever. Yeah, so I'm not really sure how long he can hide from it. And also, I wonder, why is the prime minister allowed to continue serving if he's being charged with murder, that seems like a yeah, pretty big conflict. There's no sort of like um, response from the public in this story at all, which is also really interesting. It's just like, this is happening. Yeah, and it's also kind of strange that they're just so blasé about it. That yeah. The prime minister could just murder his ex-wife, and it's just kind of a thing. Yeah, I wouldn't be feeling very comfortable if I was his current wife right now. Yeah, well, I mean, the way... The way it's been coming out, it seems like it's kind of a plot between the two of them. Was was the former wife, was she, like, holding any power? I don't think so. She was just, like, his ex-wife, right? Yeah. Uh, I'm not—like, she was the former first lady, so, you know, they, <laughs> they divorced when he was in office. But I'm not sure what kind of political intrigue is in the background that we don't know about. All right. Well, we'll keep following that one. All right, so our next story is from 538, and it is titled, Bernie Sanders is the Front Runner." So um, now um, on our sheet it says 60%, but I think now it's up to about 85% of precincts reporting in Nevada. And um, Bernie Sanders is the front runner in Nevada. He's got over 50% of the vote, I believe, correct? Uh, right now he's at... Uh I believe 46 or 47 percent of the delegates. So uh, a large plurality. Yeah, he is way out in front. Um, He won the first vote by 16 points. And then on realignment, he won by 21. And right now he's leading in delegates by 26 points, which is a massive landslide. And so what does 538 assert that this says about the state of the national primary? Uh, Well, about a week ago, they shifted to projecting 
a higher chance of no majority in the primary. And after Nevada, uh, Bernie Sanders is now up to 46% chance of winning a majority. So he is by far the most likely person to become the nominee now. 60% chance, you said? Uh, 46% chance of a majority and about 30% chance of no one winning, but he's Mm -hmm. still probably going to win a plurality either way. Yeah, um, I've been hearing a lot of talk about a contested convention lately and what that would entail. Yeah, I think after a 26-point victory in Nevada, that's probably gone down. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And the next primary is South Carolina. Is that tomorrow? I think that's tomorrow. Um, I believe the debate is tomorrow. Oh. And then uh, the voting comes a couple days after. Yeah, that looks correct. But All yeah, right. um, apparently Joe Biden's lead has been steadily going down in South Carolina. Yeah. And we haven't got any polls oh, after Nevada. He's lost absolutely all momentum, pretty much. I saw, um, I think it was in South Carolina, um, Bloomberg is actually ahead of Biden right now. Yeah. So I think it's safe to say if Sanders wins South Carolina, it's pretty much over. That's um. That's really honestly not what I expected from this primary. I don't think that's what anyone expected, you know, in October. I don't think anyone expected this primary. Yeah. Uh, there's been a lot of there's been a lot of angles. All right. Um, so our next story comes straight from Oregon, and it's Senate Republicans in final phase of walkout preparations over carbon bill. I mean, we could run the story every week. Yeah, it's pretty sad that they've been planning this for months. So they are walking out over a cap-and-trade bill, correct? Yep, Senate Bill 1530. So tell me a little bit about this bill and why the Senate Republicans are so opposed to it. So it's a pretty standard cap-and-trade bill. It regulates carbon emissions in the state. It puts a cap on corporations emitting carbon and allows them to trade their caps and you know carbon permits to other corporations. Um, but Senate Republicans are extremely opposed to this and have been for since last year, essentially. Um, last year is when most of them fled to Ohio, Idaho, right? Yeah. So uh, Democrats in the state legislature tried to introduce this last year, and Republicans left back then and denied them a quorum. So it's been on the back burner since now, essentially. And do we know why this is specifically such a trigger for Senate Republicans, or are they just is this just a strategy by them? Um, well, it's the highest profile legislation that the legislature could probably pass. Um, it's a big national point of contention about, you know, climate change legislation. Cap and trade has always been a big uh, tipping point for people getting upset. Um, but Republicans in Oregon say that it would damage the environment um, and also damage the economy. And their big concern is that it's going to drive business out of the state and it's going to hurt the economy for, you know, corporations who would have to pay money for carbon. So the walkout specifically is a strategy because the Democrats hold a supermajority in the Oregon state legislature, correct? Yeah. So essentially, if any Republicans try to, like, filibuster it or, you know— try to hold up debate, then Democrats could really override that mm-hmm. and uh, just pass it. So Republican strategy now is to just leave 
So Democrats don't have a quorum and they can't even conduct business in the Senate. So it's kind of like the nuclear option for them. Yeah, um, except they've done it like eight times. Yeah. Okay. um, So our final story for today is, I mean, probably the biggest story to come out of Portland in a couple of years. Um, And it's about Jeremy Christian, the the Max train stabber found guilty on all charges. So why don't you tell me a little bit about this? Yeah, uh, the trial just ended uh, last week, and he was convicted on 12 counts, including uh, murder in the first degree for the two victims, uh, assault, uh, menacing, uh, and a couple of other charges. He, like, threw a bottle before at people. He was, you know, convicted of um, harassment. And really, it, it wasn't a huge surprise, but, um, but it, it did it's surprise closure. me. Yeah. yeah, it did surprise me how quick they uh, convicted him. Uh, the jury only took about a day and a half to go through all the charges, and they all came back unanimously to convict. So, um, I mean, this happened in 2017, but it's obviously, I mean, it's been wavering in, the, in Portland's collective consciousness since then. And um, what do you think it says to have closure for this case in Portland? Um, I think it's kind of a symbol for, you know, the fact that at least someone in Portland would stand up to, like, racist violence and hate. Did did the person who stopped him, did he die? uh, Yeah, as far as I remember, the two men died who intervened, and then there was another one who got stabbed but lived. Okay. uh, And he spoke at the trial, I think, and, yeah. and, you know, he was very seriously wounded. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Nick Gatlin, thank you so much for being in the booth today. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks to you, too. Okay, so we're going to go straight into our deep dive segment this week, and we're talking about environmental response in Portland, which is fitting because we just talked about cap and trade. So um, first we have an interview with Dan Saris. Uh, and he's going to talk a little bit with us about a recent environmental disaster in the Oregon region. I'm Dan Sears. I'm the conservation director with Columbia Riverkeeper, and I'm also the co-director of the Power Past Frack Gas Coalition. Um, so could you give me a brief summary of the situation we're in with the landfill up to Columbia right now? Yes. Um, so a little over a week ago, we learned that chemical waste management, which is a subsidiary of waste management, received uh, roughly 2.5 million pounds of radioactive fracking waste illegally and dumped this material in the landfill um, at Arlington, Oregon. So this is material that results from fracking oil and gas, and most of what came to Oregon were what what is called filter socks, um, equipment that is used to used to filter the fracking fluid before it's reinjected into the ground or disposed of. Um, so these filter socks accumulate what is naturally occurring radioactivity, uh, radionuclides like radium, for instance. Um, so while these radionuclides may occur naturally, they do not occur at the levels naturally that, that we're seeing in the radioactive waste. So this is um, a concentrated form uh, radioactivity in the in the fracking waste. We became very alarmed in learning about this illegal dumping and have been urging the state of Oregon to take strong action to hold the company accountable. But there hasn't been any fine. Any, 
yeah, and to stop any future um, dumping like this. But there hasn't been any fine issued yet, has there? That's correct. There has been no fine yet issued. Um, the way Oregon Department of Energy has so far interpreted its law is that this was considered a single violation, even though the violation uh, went on for a three-year period. So in 2016, 2017, and 2019, chemical waste management illegally received and dumped uh, radioactive fracking waste in Oregon. And despite that time span uh, violation, uh, the state has considered this to be a single violation. And um, how difficult would it be to chalk this up to simple ignorance? Well, there's it's hard to believe that the folks on the upstream end weren't aware that this was potentially a conflict with Oregon's rules. Um, so chemical waste management claims that they were unaware that Oregon's laws didn't allow this material to be dumped in Oregon. And Oilfield Waste Logistics, which is the company that sent the waste from North Dakota to Oregon to chemical waste management, claims that they thought Oregon's law allowed this higher level of radioactivity. But the standard is clear. It's five picocuries per gram of radioactivity. Above that level, uh, waste is prohibited and considered to be radioactive in Oregon. Okay. Now, some of the waste that ended up in Oregon was 1,700 picocuries per gram, hundreds of times above Oregon's allowable limit. Unfortunately, this is still below the limit that the U.S. Department of Transportation would require labeling of this material. So we're in sort of a, a perfect um, gap here of regulation where the material came in unmarked in either trucks or train cars and was dumped in Oregon without the knowledge of any Oregon regulator. Um, what's becoming clear, and, and really to your, to your question, is uh, the oil and gas industry are becoming more and more aware that the process of fracking is producing tremendous quantities of radioactive fracking waste. And they are looking for places to dump and essentially to hide this liability. Um, and they are finding unsuspected communities like Oregon uh, to do this. And it's a, it's a huge problem and one that is getting national attention. Do we have any sort of idea of how widespread this might be outside of this specific landfill? We don't know whether other landfills in Oregon or Washington have been targeted. Um, Oregon Department of Energy does not believe that has occurred. Um, we are interested in hearing more and believe that the Oregon Department of Energy is going to be undertaking investigation to look at um, how this waste was dumped in Arlington and whether Oregon is vulnerable to other dumping like this. Um, but we, we do remain concerned because what we're learning by reading about um, what is going on in other states is that some of this waste has been dumped in landfills that are, are not even supposed to accept chemical waste uh, like the one in Arlington, but are ending up in landfills where, um, you know, the, the lining isn't robust, where people don't know the material is radioactive or even toxic. And, you know, this is something that's prompted, for instance, um, the state of Montana is currently looking at legislation to beef up its own rules uh, around the dumping of fracking waste um, that could be coming from North Dakota. So it's it's a nationwide problem. We've seen cases on the East Coast, um, in the Ohio Valley, where uh, some of this waste is being produced at very high levels of radioactivity. Um, and so we are just at the kind of the tip of the iceberg here learning about this issue. And for people who are interested in learning more, there's a really uh, fantastic um, investigative piece by Justin Noble in the Rolling Stone 
um, in late January that really delves into this issue in, in great depth. Um, he interviewed hundreds of people who are involved with the handling of this waste, the trucking of the waste, and what he's finding is that people are being exposed to toxic and radioactive material really without their knowledge. Um, it's a it's an alarming aspect of the fracking process that we're only just beginning to really get our heads around. All right. Well, Dan Saris, thank you so much for being in today. It's been a great conversation. Yeah, thank you for having me very much. All right. And next, we're going to talk to Alyssa Starry, who is a professor in the Honors College at PSU. And we had a conversation with her this week about green roofs. So in the booth, we have Alyssa Starry, professor of, well, why don't you give me your full title? I'm an associate professor of urban ecology in the Honors College. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. So um, let's just talk a little bit about the work you do specifically with green roofs in relation to wastewater management. Why don't you start by telling me about that? Okay, so... Hopefully, many of you are aware of um, green roofs and what they are. Sometimes in Portland, we like to call them eco-roofs, mm -hmm. and they're basically rooftop gardens. So they modify the roof of an existing building, making sure that it's waterproof. Then they add um, some other elements that will support a substrate or a special growing material that's kind of like cat litter. And then inside of that growing material, we plant our different various plant species. And about how many of those are in the Portland area? Do we have any numbers on that? Oh, yeah. We're definitely over 400, maybe approaching 500 eco-roofs, depending on how you That's count exciting. them. So we have a couple of locations, like our campus, for example, mm -hmm. that actually have multiple eco-roofs on site. And um, what's the hope for what having that number of eco-roofs does to the Portland environment? Oh, yeah, so I didn't actually fully answer your first question. So the idea, the main ecosystem service that um, is attributed to these systems is stormwater management. And so the idea is that um, as um, precipitation occurs in our city, which, you know, we get a lot of in the winter, the eco-roofs can intercept that rain and prevent it from entering our stormwater, our combined sewer overflow stormwater treatment system. Mm -hmm. And so then that takes a lot of burden off of that system. Okay. So um, something that I've been reading about a lot recently is um, like wastewater and fracking runoff into mm. our river system. Yeah. How, um, talk to me about how green roofs can, I mean, obviously they can't offset that directly, but how they factor into that. Yeah, so I, I like to say every time it rains in Portland, you can think of it as sort of like an avalanche of water mm -hmm. that falls onto our hardscapes. Uh -huh. And then the water has to make it from that hardscape to the wastewater treatment system. And there's a, a series of pipes. And we learned a couple of years ago that those pipes aren't quite big enough. Um, to hold all of the water. And so um, when they can't carry the water, the, it overflows into even the Willamette. And, you know, we tried to address this a couple of years back with a big pipe. Um, but since we continue to pave over our pervious areas, our pervious parks and forests and things like that, um, even our yards, uh, we're putting even more demand on that pipe again to deliver uh, the water to the treatment plant, and so we're getting some overflows. How specifically do the green roofs operate in a way that makes it easier on the stormwater management system? So, you know, it's going to depend on how the green roof is designed, mm -hmm. but we have some research that suggests 
10 to 30 percent of the stormwater that falls on an eco roof is going to be held there uh -huh. and not contribute to the load of wastewater that enters the system. And so then it evaporates at a later point yes. and is reabsorbed in the in environment? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And it, it might even be cleaned through mm -hmm. the process. So that's the other thing that um, green roofs can help with in stormwater management is they reduce what's called the peak flow. And so that's, you know, this critical time when we get a really big rainfall and the system just gets really swamped. What the green roof can do is it, maybe it can't hold all the water that's falling on it, but it can detain that water. So it sort of acts like a sponge and then it can gradually release that water back into the system at a rate that can be treated, that's treatable. And um, what sort of infrastructure does the city of Portland have for incentivizing these green roofs? Well, when I first came to Portland State around 2013, mm -hmm. that was the end of our incentive program. But uh, previously, the city did actually offer a rebate for people who are interested in replacing their roof with an eco roof. But that no longer exists. That no longer exists. And then last year... Why yeah. was that canceled? I think the point of the incentive program was um, to really um, seed the industry and allow businesses and professionals to kind of grow up around this demand for eco-roofs. And then once that got established, the thought was that then people could do it on their own. And, and also, the incentive was probably trying to um, support early adopters because there was a lot of speculation in the beginning about how well these systems would perform. And now we, that we know that they work and they're a good investment, um, we're really encouraging still people to in install eco-roofs. And in fact, as part of the Central City 2035 plan that was passed one or two years ago. I'm was not that quite passed sure. in the Portland City Council or yes. statewide? It just for the Portland City okay. Council. Um, specifically in the downtown area, all new development must have a green roof. Oh, really? Yeah. As of when? I think it was last year. Okay. Yeah. I'm um, not quite sure when the, you know, like the, there's probably a lag between when it passed and when it actually goes into effect. I don't know all the details, but... So, um, nationally, where is Portland in the context of the green roof movement? Are we, are we leading it or are we sort of standard in the context of other urban areas? Tell yeah. me about that. That's a really good question. Um, I think having this requirement really puts us in, um, in back in the leadership role. Mm -hmm. So to my knowledge, the only other cities that have a requirement like this are San Francisco and Denver. And I think possibly New York City is also considering one. So I think we're, we continue to kind of be at the forefront. And um, yeah. Besides stormwater management, what other benefits are there to green roofs? So we're, we're learning more about a variety of secondary benefits, including um, the ability to enhance urban biodiversity. Um, some preliminary research suggests that when water is available, the roofs can have a cooling effect, so they might be able to combat the urban heat island, but we definitely need more research on that. Um, some of my recent research is thinking about how green roofs can serve as therapeutic landscapes. So we know from studies in hospitals that 
Um, some people can heal more quickly if, for example, they have a plant in their room. And so the, the question that we have about eco-roofs is, um, can, can they function in the same capacity? So if you have an eco-roof on a hospital, can it also promote healing and well-being? So what sort of research is being done to test that? So I was really lucky to get funded through a program we have on campus called the Exito Program. The goal of this project is to increase participation by underserved students in, to, in the medical field. And so they were really interested in um, research that would... Um, um, how are you testing the therapeutic benefits of green roofs? Okay, yeah, so, yeah, so with the support, I'm able to work with these students on the OHSU. Um, okay. And the Oregon Health and Sciences University. Yeah. And and I'm also able to collaborate with some other researchers there. Without that connection, it would be re really difficult for mm -hmm. me as an ecologist to work on that campus. But through that collaboration, we were able to monitor people who were spending time out on the eco-roof at OHSU. And in fact, we were able to test their stress levels. And so we took samples, um, we took salivary samples of people um, who are spending time who appeared on the roof. And then we, um, our, the requirements of our study were that they had to spend 15 minutes on the roof. And after that time, we took a second salivary sample. And I'm still analyzing the data, but our preliminary results from this pilot study suggest that for some people, especially people who are really stressed out, who have really high cortisol levels, the green roof can actually work to lower that stress level. So what would it look like to make green roofs more accessible as a therapeutic benefit to people, specifically hospital patients, what would that look like? Yeah, that is a great question. And um, I, I, the key word in your question is accessible. Mm -hmm. So um, we also had some students working on other aspects of this question. So we had students um, document nationally how many hospitals do we know have green roofs on them. And I don't know, I, th I think the number was between 50 and 100, but I know, I know for sure that only half of the green green roofs that we identified on hospitals were actually publicly accessible mm -hmm. to the patients. So the first thing we need to do is just make those hospital eco-roofs accessible and sort of generate awareness among staff that um, these are places that they can utilize. Um, and the other thing that we noticed from our salivary study is that, um, from our cortisol study, is that there were many people whose cortisol levels didn't change when they were out on the roof. And so we're trying to think about why it works for some people and why it doesn't for others. So we also had students go out to these roofs and kind of just hang out and see what people were doing. Mm -hmm. This is a little bit outside of my um, purview as an urban ecologist. I was collaborating with a sociologist in the Honors College, Tina Birdsall, and also some faculty in architecture, Corey Griffin. And um, working with them, we learned how to do what they refer to as a post-occupancy study of these places, these rooftop gardens. So we had students kind of watch what people did, and we realized what a lot of the staff are doing, and maybe some of the caretakers, is that they're checking their phones. Hmm. They're tuning out. They're not really paying attention to what's happening in their environment, and I think that that can negate the potential therapeutic benefits that... Um, 
parks and open, urban open spaces can provide. There's a lot of hype out there right now about spending time in nature and making um, and giving people access to parks. It's just not going to work if people aren't open to um, utilizing these facilities. So I think a key um, finding from our study is going to be about encouraging people, you know, maybe even prescribing people time out in open spaces. And so how do you design a green roof space that people can walk around? How is that different than designing a green roof space that's primarily for stormwater management? Well, so there's a lot of safety Mm -hmm. um, rules, and we have them also on our campus. So, for example, the parapet or sort of like the wall around the outside of the roof has to be a certain height or or else it's it's a fall hazard, fall risk. And so there's things like there's structural elements that make the roof... Um, able to be accessed. But then there's also a lot of things to consider in the design of the roof that make it pleasing for people to be out there. And I've been thinking a lot about this again in the hospital context, right? So if a person needs to utilize the roof, but they also have to hold um, a blood bag, you know, or, you know, other kind of medical equipment as they go, you're going to need to make the paths wider, Um, you know. Maybe you are going to also want to consider having art out there or some other things that are going to attract people out there. There's, there's a lot of um, things to consider in the design. Fortunately, there are um, researchers that have been working on this for uh, many years, especially considering healing gardens on the ground. So Naomi Sachs is a good colleague of mine at the University of Maryland who's written a lot recently about healing gardens if you're interested in learning more. And then in Portland, we're also really lucky because we have one of the leaders in this field in um, horticultural therapy at the Legacy Hospital. Her name is Theresia Hazen. And so, um, yeah, fortunately, there's a lot of people working on this already. Well, Alyssa Starry, thank you so much for coming on today. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. All right, so we've had some laughs. We've made some new friends. It's been a good episode. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Um, I'm Nick Townsend with the PSU Vanguard and a co-production of kpsu.org. And have a good week.